It's Friday, September 30th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And now news you can use. Or should I say news you canton use or news you can't news. Yes, I'm naming towns in Ohio from Akron to Zanesville. It's the Ohio, the Buckeye State version of news you could use. In this edition of news you can use, there's a clown attack going on in the state of Ohio. Actually, it's a series of clown attacks. Writing schools have been closed now, and it's because of a threat to the school on homecoming day, and it's another clown threat. Here we go. T.J. Parker already covering one clown threat in Coleraine, now to another one. Reading, Ohio. The Reading schools are closed today after a woman reported being attacked by a male dressed as a clown. You know, clowns have genders, right? He wasn't a male dressed as a clown. He was a male clown. Oh, it's not funny. I know it's not funny. You know it's not funny because we're talking about clowns and clowns aren't funny. They never make you laugh. They're supposed to make you laugh because a couple hundred years ago with Commedia dell'arte, apparently we had different sensibilities. We liked bear baiting back then. Clowns are like limos. Limos are supposed to be classy. They connote class, word association, clown, funny, limo, class, reality. Neither of those things are true, right? I'm going to bend over. I'm going to crawl around. This carpet's disgusting. Oh, I'm in the back of a limo. I got to keep telling myself a limo is classy. Half the time you're on one of those jump seats, you're facing backwards. Limo's so big it can't get around traffic. It signifies luxury. It's not actually luxurious. Clowns signify funny, not funny, especially to these Ohio school districts. A woman not too far from here was attacked. That woman was on South Terrace Drive. She told us that a man that was dressed in a clown suit had attacked her while she was out smoking on her front porch. She was only able to see his hands. Wow, that must be a really detailed suit. Just by looking at his hands, she could tell he was a clown. I get the big floppy feet. Does he have funny hands, funny gloves? How does this work? Well, that was on one side of the state of Ohio, but all throughout the state, there's a political shakeup going on. Not just the clown menace, but the state's very status as a bellwether. Bellwether, kind of a 1940s way of saying key battleground state, which is a 2000 aughts way of saying swing, swing state. New York Times reports, Ohio is suddenly fading in importance this year, like that picture in Back to the Future. Oh, it's an alternative reality. We've got to save Ohio. Actually, it says Hillary Clinton has not been to the state since Labor Day, and her aide said Thursday she would not be back until next week after a month-long absence, effectively acknowledging how difficult they think it will be to defeat Donald Trump. Ohio has not fallen into step with the demographic changes, transforming the U.S., It is older, it is wider, it is less educated than the nation at large. Now, the Wall Street Journal also wrote about Ohio and how weird it is and how well the Republicans are doing there. They had an interesting story about how Senator Rob Portman is providing the coattails and the presidential candidate, Donald Trump, is riding them rather than vice versa. But the Times piece was more like an elegy. Ohio, left behind, ignored, quote, it long basked in the presidential spotlight, end quote, but no more. This is definitely the perspective of a non-Ohioan. From inside the state, what being a bellwether or battleground gets you is that every TV ad is a political one. The mailbox is filled with annoying flyers. You can't even answer your house phone. But beyond the annoyances, let's just use logic here. Here's what being a highly contested swing state means. It means a greater percentage of people in your state will not get the presidential candidate of their choice. 
the closer the vote, the more likely it is that that state's electoral college votes will go to the other guy or the other woman. It is more logical for an average voter to want to live in a safe state because that means if the person really is average and does reflect the average, it means that state's votes are more likely to go to the candidate that the average person wants. So if you're a Republican, you want to live in Wyoming and be ignored. And if you're a Democrat, you want to live in New York and not get campaigned to because at least your state's votes will go for the person you want. Now, Ohio status is all excellent news for Miss Ohio 2014 because in our latest Ohio news that you can't use, Miss Ohio, Madison Jeziato, named after the capital city of a different Midwestern state, is endorsing Donald Trump. And why would you care that Miss Ohio 2014 is endorsing Mr. Trump? Well, she makes a fairly compelling case that, get this, Donald Trump never harassed her. Quote, I briefly met Mr. Trump for the first time the night before the Miss USA telecast. As an aspiring entrepreneur, I'd always looked up to Mr. Trump for his business acumen and career success. Mr. Trump was very gracious. Then she goes, she loses the contest. Well, you know, she doesn't come in the top 20. Let's just say that. She becomes a conservative or was a conservative, but she goes to the CPAC conference and he's there. She reports Mr. Trump was a complete gentleman. And she writes, I found Mr. Trump's respectful behavior and sincere interest to be very refreshing. And a little later says he was very respectful, kind, and encouraging. So there you have it. She briefly met him twice and was not sexually harassed. She was not fat shamed. She was not belittled either time, likened to a Muppet. And this is why Madison Jeziato, Miss Ohio 2014, will be endorsing Donald Trump. If you don't want to read the whole column in Washington Times, she's now a conservative columnist who sometimes contributes to Fox News. The headline, Why I'm a Miss USA Competitor Supporting Donald Trump, the too-long-didn't-read version is because he never called me Miss Piggy. So there you have it. The state fruits the pawpaw. The state juices tomato. The state rock song is Hang On Sloopy. We're talking about Ohio, and this was Ohio News You Can Use. On the show today, it's an Antan twig for the spiel. Corrections, Lobstars awarded. But first, a theory of mine pursued. Over the last 20 years, since Slate has been an online entity, some things have changed. We were asked to identify those things. And I noticed that we don't call out, we don't get all caught up in, we don't police pretentiousness like we used to. There was a time that using police in a verb that way would have been seen as kind of pretentious. Now it goes on all the time. Pretentiousness hasn't gone away. It's seen more increasingly as not even pretentious. Let us bat this crazy idea around with Simon Doonan. When I was a young man, a youngish man, younger than today, there were a couple of rules that I was taught I was encouraged to be creative, encouraged to be intelligent, but don't be pretentious. That should be the limitation on those other two traits. It is an affectation. It is off-putting. But these days, I find that is not true. There could be many explanations as to why. In fact, I might be wrong. I'm willing to consider that but not at great length, because I am joined by Simon Doonan, who is a columnist for Slate. He is the brand ambassador for Barney's 
Is that still your title? You're the brand ambassador? Yes, it is my title. And um, I guess it is a little bit pretentious. Well, it could be seen as pretentious or it could be seen as having a flair and being descriptive. Maybe I'm always attuned to the pretentious potential of it because I always tell people, yes, I wear a sash, just like a real <laughs> ambassador. So I debunk it a bit, which is um, a British way of avoiding pretension. Now, let me ask you, have you conflated ambassador with Miss Universe contestant? Because I have not seen an ambassador in a sash in many years. Well, I guess the old idea of an ambassador is a portly gentleman yes. with a big sash and, and some maybe some medals mm-hmm. pinned to the sash. Breaking a champagne against the hull of a ship. Yeah, yes, or taking a telephone call in a restaurant on a big Bakelite phone. <laughs> so before we uh, even assess if pretentiousness has abated, how do you define it? I think it's very hard to define it because in the old days, it used to sort of be um, like a class thing, you know, like Hyacinth Bucket. Do you know that TV no, show? No. The, in the 80s in England, there was a very popular show about this woman whose name was Hyacinth Bucket, <laughs> and she always pronounced it bouquet, you know, and she was clearly lower middle class aspiring to be upper middle class or aristocratic. The whole shtick was about pretension. So back then, pretension meant, especially in England, it was a class thing. And I guess that was the same in America, then probably there would be people aspiring to be pilgrims or whatever they were, founding fathers, you know, like my family goes back, blah de blah To the blah. Mayflower, right. So there was, you know, in the past, it was probably a simpler idea because it was to do with class. In England back then, the, the people in the middle, the middle class were the most anxious people. Working class people are very comfortable. They know who they are, which football team they support. And then upper class people with their sense of superiority, they were very comfortable too. And it's the middle class that were constantly dithering and trying to establish their foothold. So Hyacinth is that person who's constantly inviting people to her candlelit suppers and talking about what kind of china she uses. Do you think the classes in America uh, in 2016 work that way? Well, I guess the classes here are focused hilariously around which college you went to Mm -hmm. and then what that signifies and the nuances of colleges is something I only came to understand when I married an American and was sort of immersed. Like, I never thought about it. I mean, I went to Manchester University. I had friends that went to Oxford and Cambridge. It never came. We never thought that it meant anything other than I was at Manchester and they were Oxford and Cambridge. But in America... It means so much, the nuances of which college you went to and how you got in there and stuff like that. There was a time when especially Frenchifying a word was seen as pretentious. But now, I think what you're supposed to do is not say, certainly, Bombay or Peking. Now you're supposed to say Mumbai and Beijing. And there was a time when I associated that with pretension. And yet, I'm wrong. Yeah, and the same, I think... With the French thing, like um, my mum, who was working class Irish, she battened onto all these French things like de rigueur and cri de coeur. And yeah. um, she would say these things because she thought it was just hilarious that anybody would ever insert French things into their speech to aggrandize themselves. Whereas that was very much the original intention, giving yourself an air of sort of international savoir-faire by using these French phrases. And over time, those just become kind of funny and 
but I, it's how it's done. I think like、mm-hmm. someone could say something very pretentious about a painting and get all breathy and misty about it, but if they really kind of mean it, it's not pretentious. If, but if they're doing it in a way that's they're trying desperately to. Seem more cultivated than maybe they are, then that seems a bit tragic and desperate, and probably falls under the heading of pretension. Well, what about the world of fashion? To me, every time I see a runway show, I'm like, "Wow, that is nothing I'd wear," and I might think of it as pretentious. But then I have to guard against that instinct and know that somehow this will be translated into the mainstream, taken down. I don't know, twenty, thirty, some some odd percent, maybe people like you. Are part of that, and so there is this mechanism whereby the visionary envisions, then we translate it to the mainstream, and it works out well, and no charges of pretentiousness are、uh, levied. Well, fashion used to be a very small universe, and it was sort of a privileged world for rich ladies. I'm thinking of you know 1950s France or whatever, where it was just this tiny little world, and it was. Pretentious utterances would come out of that world that were very like breathy about you'd be mad to leave the house this season without wearing lavender chiffon, you、yeah. know, crazy things like that. Everybody who's anybody is yeah, is. and I think those were sort of seen as very pretentious. But now, you know, in the postmodern post postmodern era, we see them as being completely hilarious、um, because. We don't have that class system now. Anybody can be stylish and groovy. You can buy anything you want at any price at any time of the day or night. So it's become a very democratized world. But back when it was an insular, rich lady world, accusations of pretentiousness were coming thick and fast. Because I guess that was then. People saying I can't have that, and I also hate you for, for、yeah. <laughs> excluding me from that world. So I'm going to make fun of it, which is all completely legit. Once material goods—that's an interesting insight. So when material goods are really unobtainable, then you enforce the idea of pretentiousness. Oh, that's not better. Meaning, I can't really afford it anyway.、Uh, so you just say oh, oh, the only kind of person who would want that is pretentious. Now, I mean, I look at the entire whole aisles of Whole Foods are really just a bunch of pretentious collections of food. On the one hand, you could say it's better, but on the other hand, now it's you know affordable to most people. Most people can live the kashi kale and quinoa lifestyle. I think what that has become about is. The emphasis has shifted from being pretentious to being to virtue signaling.、Mm-hmm. Like I'm a good person because I buy locally harvested kale crackers, you know, that are made by artisans in a heritage factory. All that kind of demented worthiness and virtue signaling has probably displaced the focus on pretentiousness because I don't know. It's sort of there's plenty of that to make fun of now in our culture. That isn't about pretension. That's just about virtue signaling. I'm a good person because I'm recycling everything and I'm eating organic this and blah blah blah. You've written about how men respond to fashion, and you were writing about an early focus group when the idea of casual Fridays came about, and men were just so scared of getting it wrong. Back then, was part of their fear that they would pick something that was seen as pretentious, and now that fear, now that men are wearing clothes that fit them a little bit more,、uh, does that play into our pretentiousness、uh, discussion? 
I think that men were much more preoccupied with just looking like idiots. Like, <laughs> no guy wants to look like a dork. No guy wants to look like, you know, just a goofball. Those are basic, very fundamental concerns that every guy has. They might have seen somebody who was very effete mm -hmm. in some velvet jacket with a flowery shirt, aka me, and thought, well, he's a bit pretentious. But then that would be a judgment based on visuals, you know, like the metrosexual revolution allowed men to be more interested in what they were and to leave the world of uniforms, suits, shirts, and ties, and dress more casually, which comes... You have to make more choices if you're, if you're going to dress casually. But I also... I do think the metrosexual revolution a little bit is... I used to fear being seen as out there or dressing in a way that could be mocked as frou-frou or dressing in a way that could be mocked as uh, putting on errors or trying to appear to be something more than I am. And now there's an easier, more casual embrace of that. I think men are still basically Swedish when it comes to clothes. <laughs> they don't want to seem to be attracting attention. That's a smaller group of men who are like flamboyant, love to dress up. And that includes everyone from me right through to basketball players who a lot of that is about preening, showing off, having fun, having an easy breezy relationship with flamboyance. I can't tell you the number of times I get in the elevator in our building in Midtown and, um, some guy says to me, oh, nice jacket, shirt, whatever. I wish I could get away with that. Huh. And, and I want to say to them, the horrible tragedy is that no one would care if you took all your clothes off and poured yellow paint all over your body. In New York City, no one cares. So men are sort of indulging in, for the most part, indulging in a self-consciousness that has no rational justification because you could dress like Rip Taylor or Liberace and People would just enjoy it. Yeah. And be lucky if they noticed. I'm going to remember this phrase, a self-consciousness that has no rational justification. That is one of the things I think that enforces the uh, stricture against pretentiousness. But I want to get to something else you said, which is I think a big part of this change that I've been noticing is the embrace, as far as it goes, of gay culture and black culture. Those were cultures that always embraced more flamboyance or whatever word you want to call it. And now that they've been mainstreamed, that correlates to a little bit of lessening our policing of pretentiousness. Pretentiousness was also very much bound up with high culture. Somebody who was an opera lover or, or was indulging in high art and was very overly vocal about it. Those people don't seem to exist anymore. It's quite rare to meet somebody under 30 who loves opera or, or Renaissance painting or those things that were considered high art. And if you indulged in that world, you were at one point considered pretentious. Now people would just be quizzical, I think, about it. So I guess the culture is so fragmented and so diverse that it's very hard to play gotcha with somebody yeah. about pretentiousness because it would actually be fun to hear somebody who was just out full on really, really, really old school pretentious. <laughs> it would probably be hilarious. Sometimes I hear interviews with people who are involved in aesthetic pursuits. And there was a time when if there was a guy who was doing that who wasn't gay, he'd always make that point that he wasn't gay, or if he was, perhaps he'd try to hide it. And now it's fine. It's game on. 
And therefore, I think we're just allowed for a freer discussion. I would say so. Like being pretentious and being a culture vulture was probably very enmeshed with the idea of being gay, definitely. So you're right, as that became less of a you know, minefield. But if somebody said, oh, I went to the see the ballet russe and Pavlova was just sensational with her jetés, that would be sort of in the old days considered, wow, yeah. it's a bit pretentious. But now it would just be like, oh my God, how hilarious. You should talk to that guy. He's now just write an interesting genius. niche. Yeah. Sit next to me. What's your Twitter feed? Exactly. Yeah. I agree. All right. Where do you see this going, by the way? Well, um, the culture only seems to be getting more and more chaotic. And the old divisions between what was cool, what was not cool, what was alternative, what's not alternative, and what's pretentious and what's not pretentious. I think those old boundaries have disintegrated and made for a very chaotic, mashed up place. But it's at least it's interesting. You yeah. know, people like you are constantly trying to figure it out and, and put some kind of framework on it. But it seems like it's just sort of Sodom and Glockamora, you know. <laughs> Simon Doonan. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you. And now the spiel. It's an Antan twig every three weeks or so. I'm going to emphasize the so. We get together as a tribe. We acknowledge mistakes. We celebrate our differences and we give out an award. The award is called the Lobstar. So, and I also should say, sometimes we go far afield. Uh, I was at a uh, party for Slate's 20th birthday and Salman Rushdie was there. And I didn't get to talk to him, but something better happened. New York Magazine talked to him. And in that conversation, he said, quote, I have abandoned Twitter. I had 1.2 million people on Twitter. And two months ago, I woke up and I said, I don't want to do this. I just don't want to do this. I stopped. I deleted the app. I've come around to the Franzen position that it's a noise you don't want in your head. That Salman Rushdie is always going into hiding, isn't he? Actually, you'd come to the other, the exact opposite conclusion, that here is a guy who is generally not cowed by a fatwa from the Ayatollah, yet when at underpants 78 tells him to get a life, he gets all jelly-kneed. I don't know about Salman Rushdie, but I have some counter evidence. It all started from a conversation I was having with my son, Emmett, and as conversations sometimes go when you're discussing with someone in Emmett's demographic, animals come up, you start talking about animals, things you may have seen at a zoo or on YouTube. And I said, you know, you know about spider monkeys, right? He said, yeah, but there is no monkey spider. And you know about tiger sharks. Oh, he knows about tiger sharks, but there's no shark tiger. I said, I wonder if there are any animals where the adjective noun works in both directions. Well, unlike Salman Rushdie, I have Twitter. So I tweeted out that question and we got a lot of great answers. Like DP Flav taught me about the mouse deer and the deer mouse. Many followers of me at Pescami or P-E-S-C-A-M-I said that there was a kangaroo rat and a rat kangaroo. Dan Engber, who works here at Slate, says the moth hawk or the moth owl is not to be confused with the hawk moth or the owl moth. Okay, great. And now I won't confuse them. Bill Rush noted that there's a spider crab and a crab spider and Engber and Jordan Bell, although Jordan Bell didn't get back to us on Twitter. She just sits pretty much right behind me. She said, what about this one? 
a seahorse and a horsey. Isn't that good? Glenn Shepard said, all right, not exactly what you were asking, but all sperm whales come from whale sperm. Good one. And Angie Anderson and Ben Nolting told me about this animal or these collection of animals, the goose barnacle and the barnacle goose. Yes, there is a barnacle goose. And recently Animal Planet got all judgy on their parenting skills. Barnacle geese employ a rather shocking parenting technique. Well, shocking to us. I'm sure that suckling live young is shocking, possibly disgusting to a goose. Same with sippy cups. But the video promised that we would see some crazy, extreme, on-the-edge treatment of goose chicks. These chicks are about to get their first taste of extreme sports. Base jumping without a parachute. So the video is the geese don't have a parachute. They do have wings. That kind of goes unacknowledged, and it seems important. But the chicks, they don't even have the ability to fly yet. They just kind of jump down this mountainy, craggy thing, and sometimes they get hurt, but they weigh so little it, it pretty much works out. But this is a part of a whole trend where to get you interested in an animal, you compare it to crazy human behavior. Yes, it's crazy for humans, but you know, I got to tell you, a lion is just chasing and eating the gazelle. He is not challenging his manhood inside the octagon where two enter and one will leave. I have a notion of these Animal Planet documentarians just walking around a regular neighborhood, a suburban neighborhood, and taking shots of just animals doing things that animals do and putting in some background music and the announcer voice and turning it into pigeons sitting on a telephone wire. Actually, it's called slacklining, and it's all the rage at Burning Man. Look over there. Is that a duck or the craziest skimboarder on the pond. Now, speaking of announcer guys, I made a mistake. A few people pointed it out. Mark Mascolino on Facebook, Facebook slash Slate Gist. You're always so good. I can't believe I've caught a correction. Believe me, I make a lot of mistakes. But he said you had John Hamm stumping for the wrong Teutonic car brand. He represents Mercedes-Benz, not BMW, as I said. Tim Lowell on Twitter pointed out that it's actually Will Lyman of Frontline who does the BMW ads, which is why, which explains whenever I see a BMW ad, I both want to buy a car and get somehow aggrieved at the abuses of prisoners in Abu Ghraib. But John Tanzer took it one step further, and he noted something interesting about these John Hamm videos, these John Hamm ads about the Mercedes-Benz. The guys who wrote the ads obviously think that if you get John Hamm to voice it, you could write any old crap and it'll sound really important. Come on, pick up your game. Now, this is similar to when I did the call out for the uh, spider crab crab spider thing. I was talking, first I did this on Twitter, and then I mentioned it on the show, and I got a lot of good responses. That weird period of time between an event like a debate or one of the conventions and when it starts registering in polls and how during that period you really think you saw something like one candidate doing better, but until the polls affirm this, you don't know what to think and you could be wrong. And maybe you're building into your consciousness reasons why you might be wrong. What's the name for this weird interregnum? And I've got to give it, and I'm going to name this guy the Runner-up lobster of the Antan twig for the perfect word, David Marcellus Polimbo. 
It is the polimbo period, and I'm going to use this word, and I encourage you to do so. Well, I thought Clinton really crushed it in the debate, but we'll have to wait through this polimbo until we're sure. But the real lobstar of the Antan Twig is Ms. Eve Tolpa, who writes to me, quote, I have scenes from Billy Joel Boulevard as my ringtone. I made it as a New Year's gift to myself this past January. January, great time for a New Year's gift as is Rosh Hashanah coming up. And I was like, what is she talking about? I don't know what this song is. And a year ago, two years ago, I was talking about a stretch of road in Nassau County. And I sang, oh, did I sing horribly? And to think that someone took my singing and made it into a ringtone. I mean, I guess she's incentivized to quickly answer that phone. I might use it as an alarm rather than a ringtone, but I've got to give it to you, Eve Tolpa. A strange audio choice but a definite winner. You are the lobstar of this Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson does not know how anyone possibly summers on the Cape when they could go to the vineyard. Just producer Chris Berube announced that lips that touch non-grass-fed beef will never touch his. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, turns on his heel, points a craggy finger at Chris Berube, and shouts, Jacques I saw you kissing a cow on the meadow by the pale moonlight. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, only listens to vinyl. And not even records, just the fabric. The gist. We prefer the Three Musketeers in the original French. Oh, not the novel, the candy bar. Anything with nougat must be enjoyed in the shadow of the Arc de Triomphe. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>